Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. I'm joined today by a special guest, R.A. Busby is the author of Corporate Body, published by Cemetery Gates Media, and the Shirley Jackson award-winning story, Not the Man I Married. In her spare time, R.A. Busby goes into the barren desert or the dark forest to find weird things to write about. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a genuine pleasure and an honor, so I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I, uh, I'm so excited, especially to, to talk to you today about corporate body and, uh, and also, you know, talk a little bit about not the man I married because uh, these books or, or these stories really, really uh, reached in and grabbed hold of me in a way that I was not expecting. Um, when I was trying to explain corporate body to my, my father, um, <laughs> It was, it was really funny because I, I had to kind of frame it like, this is really impressive uh, literature and also one of the grossest things that I think I've, <laughs> I've read. And, uh, and I, w- when I described the premise, which of course is uh, this character, Nick, he is a poor college student. He wants to, uh, or, or maybe not a college, he's just poor. And um <laughs> He's trying to, I relate with the, with the idea of a poor college student, I guess. Um, but he goes in for this drug testing and the, the, the kind of testing that is done on him is <laughs> super gross and quite scary. And when I explained it to my father, uh, he cringed and he said, I hope she's okay, because it sounds like there's some experience in there that, because uh, nobody just writes about this for fun, right? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny that you should say that you were you were talking to your father about it because it's very, very much a story about fathers and sons and parenting and and how a father parents a son and then how that son takes that identity that has been given to him by his father and becomes a father, hopefully a good one, to his offspring, however unexpected or different that that offspring may be from that parent and that desire of sons to live up to their father's expectations and their father's love for their for their kids as well and so that i'm so i'm honored that you would would share that with with your father actually i'm i'm, I'm genuinely touched and, and it is gross and i and i hope i'm okay but i hope that he <laughs> story as well so uh but yeah partly it is coming out of personal experience um so i is that personal experience um, parenthood experience or is that personal experience medical experience that we should be very worried about? Yes, actually both. And also being a poor college student um, <laughs> because the thing is in, in college, um, okay, you know how like with Edgar Allan Poe, John Allen, his stepfather, um, technically sent him to college, but um kept him on such short comments that he basically was just gambling so that he could eat. Um, me, what I did was um, I, I started talking to, I had, I had pretty much zero money in, in college. And again, I'm not trying to cry poor mouth because I know that there are folks that just plain can't go to college. And so I'm grateful for having had that opportunity that many folks don't have, but at the same time, um, you, you know that thing about eating five for a dollar ramen um, was a real was a real thing. And one of my friends who was way better at this than I was said, "Hey, why don't you sell your plasma?" And so I said, "That's even a thing." And she said, "Yeah, and they pay pretty well. It's just it takes forever." And so <laughs> there I was repeatedly, as often as they would allow me, selling my plasma and then literally going around the corner to the the, the Chinese food place around the corner that had the cheap egg rolls. And it occurred to me at some point that it was kind of like I was eating myself where with the money that I got from the plasma center going and eating the egg rolls. And um, so that's so that's coming out of that, that, you know, pretty much all I'm really 
you know, making money doing right now is just producing plasma. And that's pretty much the source of source of my my income is the the immediate commodification of something that my that, that my body was producing, um, and so that definitely coming coming right out of that and and so of course uh, that that also leads to to you know to to any kind of thing in the psych department that they're willing to pay you for uh, that doesn't sound like it's too terrible. Sign me up, and so yeah, that was definitely coming out of that experience. Yeah, I have I have two experiences I want to share with you uh, because a lot of this resonated with me. Um, it, you know, the, this idea of of uh, just being so you know dirt poor, cash strapped that you'll do almost anything, right? So, my brother, um, he for for a time in college, that was what he did. He would go and donate plasma all the time um, to to get paid and especially around like the holidays or something where, you know, there was this expectation that we all get gifts for one another. Um, he was like, well, time to go, <laughs> time to go leave myself out for, you know, for some money. And, you. um, you know, it, I, I do come from a background of, of relative privilege to other people that I've met in life. You know, I never had to worry about not having a book to read, you know, I never worried about not having food. I never worried about, you know, not having a roof. Um, even though, you know, I've also worked multiple jobs my whole life to make ends meet mm -hmm. as did my father, you know, as do, does my brother. Um, my, my brother's salary is, you know, twice what I get paid, but he's still constantly looking for gig work, you know, to try to make things happen. So I, I definitely resonated with that. And, uh, and with regards to, you know, come, some of those psychological, you know, testing that you get paid for, I've signed up for some of those studies as well um, and felt the pang of regret when it's like I, I, I'm picked to do a study and then I find out what the study is and I'm like, I, I can't actually do this because, uh, you know, this would interfere with my full-time job or something like that, like this could jeopardize, you know, what I have. And, and so then you find like, all right, where do I have to come back or, or cut back, you know, this month in order to make ends meet? Yeah. Do I need that much toilet paper? <laughs> <laughs> yes. How many plies can I get away with? Right. And so you get like the quarantine available toilet paper, you know, that, that <laughs> big wood, wood chunks. To yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm with you. I hear you. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, and it's also, of course, coming out of being uh, a pregnancy, of course, which, you know, and, and as, especially in the U.S., unfortunately, it gets medicalized really super quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, it, as much as I wanted my uh, my pregnancy to be uh, no plug, no drug. Um, no, nah, it didn't work out that way. So, so it's also coming as, as well, as well. Yeah, there were, there's a lot in um, corporate body that, that I felt, you know, a real connection to, and also a lot of just horrifying stuff. You know, there's, there's the horrifying medical stuff, the body horror, which is always so, gross. And I think one of the things that really struck me about this is um, it, it's, you know, I, I'm going to spoil a little bit, not too much, but, you know, Nick, the main character, he's, he's male and goes through a pregnancy, which is terrifying. You know, <laughs> I, I speak as a, a male. Um, I, I know that my wife and I, you know, are frequently talking about do we do we even want kids you know is that something that that is really in the cards for us and i know that um the idea of pregnancy is also just terrifying for her I, so i nothing but sympathy <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh, i i mean it's it's quite scary and at the same time you still represent a lot of that tenderness because um after he does give birth, um, you know, there's this like immediate connection to the, the, the things coming out of him. 
um, that that raises this whole new kind of existential terror, which is, you know, now that I'm I've done this, how am I responsible for for what comes out of me? What what happens next? What are the next steps? How can I see this life enter into the world knowing that my experience has already been so precarious? And I think, you know, it's, it's the genesis of that, uh, of that idea um, came as, as one, you know, I, I did as one does and was sort of looking for ideas and so uh, to, to, of what to write about. And I find that at least with, I don't know how other people's process works, but with mine, I sort of open up, open up my head to whatever is seems to be interesting and then uh, then deliberately fall down whatever internet rabbit holes open up and so of course that leads you as it does to the botfly sites on on youtube <laughs> and and because that was completely horrifying but then from there i found something that was even worse which was um, uh, which was a creature that uh, apparently, according to Charles Darwin, caused, when he found out about this this insect, it it caused him to lose faith in the idea of a benevolent God, and, <laughs> and that was the parasitoid wasp. And what the wasp does is it um, it injects using an ovipositor or uh, or some other means that it's equipped with it injects its eggs into the body of a caterpillar and so it's i'm watching this video of this poor caterpillar that's been taken over by this wasp with like these little weird bubble things all over it's it's outside and then these baby wasps come out kind of like i described them in the story but what got me what just absolutely got me was the caterpillar starts spinning this uh, this beautiful, actually, gold cocoon that looked like looked like spun sugar made of gold or honey uh, around these baby uh, wasps, which looked like again they were golden and and gorgeous, and it showed the caterpillar, which and the the narrator is helpfully explaining that normally the caterpillar would like totally eat them or destroy them, but because the wasp had chemically uh, taken over the caterpillar's functioning. It was gently and lovingly like tapping this uh, this cocoon into place with a gesture that I've seen a million times with myself, my own child, you know, dogs and puppies with, uh, with you know, babies and people. It was maternal and parental. And it was like, oh my God. And and at first I felt like, wow, this, this caterpillar has been zombified by the, the wasp and no wonder Charles Darwin felt this way. But then I thought, how different is that from um, human responses with oxytocin um, as, uh, as a chemical alteration post-pregnancy post to enable bonding with your, with your baby? How different is that? And is that, is that distinguishable from genuine love? Does it matter? And because you do feel that bond, because this this child is a part of you. You were a corporate body, it, you know, where you've got this separate entity that exists inside you, that's part of you, and yet not the same. But you're you're bonded together. Um, and it was it was that's that that was the genesis of that idea. That's a, such a, a fantastic rabbit hole to to fall into. And, and I think that, um, I mean, you, you hit on a lot of, of complex human ideas in there, which I think resonate very strongly in this novella, you know? Um, one of the things that, that I really appreciated about this novella is that it, it is doing so many different things. It's having a, a conversation about the complexity of, and, and horror of, parenthood and and also that the nurturing that occurs through that process you're also talking about you know the commodification of a body for you know these corporate interests the the way that i think that human life 
is kind of turned into um, a commodity. We are consistently objectified through, you know, the economic systems that that we live in. Um, and, and so, you know, this idea of, of the corporate body shares these kind of dual meanings. There's, there's, a, you know, both the, the corporate body, which is this nurturing symbiotic kind of relationship, but then there's also this idea of the, the body that belongs to a corporation, right? The, the body of this corporate entity, which is parasitic and exploitative. Well, when I was, uh, you know, in addition to the the, the bot fly sites <laughs> and the the parasitic, <laughs> uh, I, I started looking into planaria. You know, that like those those weird worms that you get in bio in bio class, like when you're a freshman, and you have to pin it down in like the little weird wax tray with all the pins, and then dissect it and hand it into your teacher. Or if you're in my class, uh, when I was a freshman, get into worm fights um, with kids that. <laughs> Because we're horrible and, and completely <laughs> um, But in terms of looking at planaria, that stuff about the way that worm telomeres don't wear out, that it operates more like a PDF that you can constantly copy without the degradation that human cells have. That's literal research going on uh, by like actual people. Uh, how can we how can we culture uh, using pluripotent uh, human stem cells? Can we grow high demand organs like uh, like kidneys or whatever using human stem cells and and uh, and some of the capacity of uh, of these uh, of, of this uh, this ability within worm DNA to not degrade? Can we possibly do that? And if you're thinking, man, that sounds Frankensteinian. Yeah, me too. I, I was, because you know that, you know, culturing, uh, culturing human organs on, um, on, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they would culture it on, maybe pigs. I have no clue. Um, is really a horrifying idea. But then, you know, at what point, what do you, what do you, what happens when that goes farther? And what do we do with these folks? And it's probably not good. Yeah, I mean, there were so many twists and turns in this novella. And, and again, I'm I'm leaning into spoil ter- or spoiler territory for those who, who haven't you know read this. I, go read this novella for sure. This is you know excellent horror. Um, but I, one of the conceits again that you play with is is not just you know what do we do with these organs? You know, like why would why would a, a company want these organs? Because the answer always seems to be like, well, so the rich can live forever, right? Like that's kind of the dream. And the answer is yes, but also on the other end of that equation, what happens when those in power suddenly have this ability to create the kind of unceasing uh, proletariat, right? Like this, this worker class that is completely beholden to this, you know, class in power. So there's this really dynamic class structure, you know, this, this commentary on class, this commentary on capital in this book that, you know, marries into some of these other terrifying existential human themes, which is how do we live in that world, right? Well, and, you know, and during the pandemic, as you know, we were, we were absolutely and painfully um, aware to what degree there was a, a deep hypocrisy surrounding people that we were terming essential workers, which is that uh, we do, deemed them essential to, to deliver food, to, to, to man the hospitals, to to, to educate uh, to educate kids to care for us to etc and yet at the same time when those same those same workers ask for better working conditions they get the brunt of a of an, an incredible amount of pressure an incredible amount of criticism and you realize you know that um, that for some uh, for some people the essential workers are, are kind of like how the the uh, the mill owners or the the um, or the mine owners in Dickens' hard times just regarded the workers as the hands like their hands their literal hands um, are 
that's the only useful part of them. And then the rest of them is just that delivery system for what they can do with their hands. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love Charlie Chaplin, right? Like he's one of my absolute favorite, you know, filmmakers of Mm. all time and modern times is probably my favorite movie from him um, because there's that, that sequence, right. Where he, gets slipped up in the gears and he goes through the whole machine, right? And and it's this this notion, right? That like, what are these machines, but just things that chew out human bodies, right? Like we are the raw material that just feed into this, this machine, this mechanical process of reproduction. We're so far, you know, devoid of, of our own identity in, in, this kind of corporate sequence, this, this, you know, world that we kind of live in where all we're doing is just producing for the, the profit of, you know, people who don't even see us as really human. Yep. Billionaire penis rockets. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, I feel like this kind of leads into one of the questions that I, I really wanted to ask, because in a lot of your uh, bios online and in, in the bios that you have for some of your short fiction, you write that, uh, you know, a writer once told you, write what you know, and what you know is very scary, you know, what, what you know scares you. So I want to ask, what is it that scares you? Well, I keep coming back to body horror uh, repeatedly because it, because I, I think in many ways it's, um, it you know for for um, for almost everybody at one point or another, it becomes this source of fear because we depend a great deal we we depend exclusively on our on the body that that we have, and we exert some degree of control over it but then not. And so sometimes it will betray us as, as it often does through illness or through, um, or through age or, um, or just, you know, you're, you're looking up at something and you trip and fall and you break your leg and then there you go. So through injury or debilitation or, or whatever, and you realize um, that it, it's not something that you have complete control over. And yet you're, uh, 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 your existence is wrapped up in it in terms of your ability to do anything and then other people's perception of you. So it's a source of, of insecurity, certainly. So that's, and, you know, I, we've all had those moments where, where, you know, we've had some kind of shocking betrayal of our body, e- either something that was major, like, oh, like, oh, wow, that's not just a mole, or, uh, <laughs> Or, you know, um, or you're, you know, if you have a uterus, your first period or through, you know, just or, or gee, I should not have eaten that particular burger. Now I'm very sorry, as is everybody else on this bus you know, or whatever. Um, and so I think that that's part of what I write about a lot because it does it does scare me. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. um Oh, gosh, you, you you hit on so much. I again, I I resonate very strongly with this right now. Um, my mother just uh, just went through uh, treatment for uterine cancer, um, where she just. I mean, thank God we caught it early enough, and um, she she had her uterus removed. Um, she had a, a total hysterectomy, but. After you know doing that, like thankfully, they were like the, the cancer had not spread anywhere else. It was you know localized. We we caught it in a very early stage. We believe you to be cancer free right now, and that's such a huge relief. But but during that process, during that time when um, we didn't know what the answer was going to be, you know, we were we were waiting on on biopsies. We were waiting on surgeries. We were waiting to see the results. Um, it, it's really terrifying. And, and at the same time, my father, um, he's been working on, on concrete floors for, you know, his, his whole life. He's, he works for, for target corporate and, uh, he's been working in, in distribution centers for 36 years. And so he, the, the process, like the, the physical process of 
his labor for 36 years has depleted all of the fat in his feet so that he's he is walking on uh just just muscle and bone and there's very little muscle left in his feet um and and his knees the ligaments in his knees have just completely deteriorated so he just last month um had both of his knees replaced and and he's going through that process of recovery right now and watching how slow that recovery is and how painful it has been you know because he can't walk he's he's got you know two entirely new knees the the betrayal of of his body over time and specifically what drove that betrayal right the 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 fact that he has worked for 36 years for a corporation that does not care about him is devastating right I can hear your hear your pain in in every word, and so again, we're back to Chaplin being smushed to death by the cogs of <laughs> yes. And I'm and, and I'm 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 terribly terribly sorry because because you're because you're absolutely right, and you know, recovering and and you know, building you know the the, the brand new knees essentially. Um, and where you you know where you, you, your bone has to go into that and then it has to become that part of you it's 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 it is a painful recovery i hope he i hope he gets through it soon and without incident and same with your same with your mom as as well i genuinely appreciate that i did i did not you know bring it up as a you know seeking uh uh, sympathy or, or pity, um, you know, but I bring it up as a, a point of frustration and a relation to your work. And, you know, what, what you're saying about, you know, some of these, these problems, I think too, you, you speak a bit about agency. And I think a lot about um, specifically your, your Shirley Jackson award-winning story, not the man I married, which is all centered on, on agency and centered on the way that relationships change over time. And, and, you know, what, what can you count on? You know, if you can't count on your body and you can't count on the relationships and you can't count on your ability to say who you are and do the things that you think you should do. And, you know, it's funny because uh, a, a, a different story that I wrote sometime later uh, through um, that was published uh, through Kandisha press um called fluid was about this woman who is a um she's a photo retoucher and she gets this photo editing program um that allows her to make alterations that have unexpected consequences but at some point she's speaking to her mother whom she later discovers it has breast cancer unbeknownst at that moment in the story to both of them and she's very frustrated because she's a teenager in this recollection and says, why can't our bodies just do what we want? And it's like, yeah, there we go. <laughs> why can't they just do what we want? Why is it that hard? And it is. And, um, and, and, you're, and it, it does take away a lot of, uh, a lot of, our, of our agency and, and our control and our or, or say so about what happens to who we are, how we're perceived, what we're able to do, how others perceive us. And so much that's wrapped up with not just our identity, but our position in society, our ability to earn money, live, eat, mm. things like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that um, that is the existential dread that, that, that I, I certainly feel, you know, all the time, just, you know, the sense of, what is the future? What does the future hold? How do I fit into that future? And I, I feel like we have this narrative, uh, especially in our society of like, you just make yourself, right? You make your future. But I think that that, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's a, what a privileged thing to say to someone that, you, you know, it's just like, well, you just work hard for it. Oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, my father has worked hard for 36 years he doesn't know if he's going to be able to retire and he has no knees yes yeah i was seeing something on tiktok the other day where they were talking about the the gen x retirement plan is basically work till you're dead and it's like <laughs> yeah yeah kind of pretty much but so, 
Um, and no, it's not a failure to plan or plan to fail. It's just this is this is the case. This is this is just the reality. And yeah. I'm, you know, I, I read about um, you know earlier generations deciding that they're going to you know retire at forty or forty five or fifty or whatever. And I think must be nice. Must be nice. <laughs> And hope you enjoy all that time on the beach, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely feel that. I mean, um, I know that you are, you are also an educator. So um, I am sure you, <laughs> I'm sure you feel that crunch a lot. Yeah, it's exactly, yeah, exactly. Basically till, you know, teach till they cry the expo marker out of my cold dead hands. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> but so no. what, what are some of the things that you like to teach? I mean, um, I, this was something that we kind of got into before the, so the show started to record, but um, I kind of wanted to, to hear a little bit. Well, I'm sure it probably will not come as a surprise to you when I say that Frankenstein goes over really, really well, because it too is about male pregnancy. Um, and, yes. <laughs> and I... I uh, one of my professors at, at, in grad school pointed this out, and it's like, yeah, wow. When you go back and you read that that part of in which Victor is uh, doing his weird little DIY student uh, student grad project up in the attic of his room, um, you realize how many times Shelley uses the word labor, um, conception. Um, and miscarriage at some point and coming from uh, uh, basically at that time in her life, a teenage girl who had had at that point uh, at least one uh, horrifying miscarriage and then um, and then was followed by several others. You realize how much that, you know, permeates through the book um, and certainly into into corporate body uh, as well. But Frankenstein goes over really well. And to mention Shirley Jackson, again, the lottery also goes over really well. Um, but, uh, but so those are those are always, you know, go to go to great things to 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 teach, um, you know, and, and as well as so many others. I could I could really go on and on and I don't want to because it, I would be here for <laughs> I mean, I'm here for it. Absolutely. I, I love hearing about, you know, the, the stories that kind of make uh, an author tick, because I, I do think that these influences, you know, tend to show up in, um, you know, the work that you create, the, the, the preoccupations that, that you have in literature do reflect on some of the things that you want to explore in your own work. Um, I love Not the Men I Married. Um oh. Yeah, I mean, truly, I, I was rereading it this morning, and um, I am just struck by, you know, the, the um, gosh, the sense of betrayal um, that, that she feels about this, this man who is, you know, no longer her husband, and she tries to figure out what is it that has changed, because all of his mannerisms are so similar, and yet there's, there's this something, this missing element to this person that she's seeing um where he's he's no longer um who he he or or she thinks he is um or was and i think that speaks so much to what shirley jackson does in her own work there's this you know sense of kind of creeping paranoia but always the sense that the things going on in a story are not what they seem there are these you know kind of expectations we bring into these social occasions and when they don't go the way that we think they should go like that's where the uncanny really creeps in that's where we are now swept into this this landscape of horror and i think she's so good at that um at that sense of, of paranoia and then often the um the pressure of depersonalization that that comes comes often as a as a result of being paranoid and yet at the same time having to pretend that everything is fine um you know like that that classic internet meme of you know the the, the, the dog having a coffee a cup of coffee at the table saying you know in the flaming house everything's fine and you know like in uh in a novel the bird's nest um which which doesn't get as red read as often as i kind of wish it would um you know, again, there's that that sense where you make that snap away from 
uh, from reality. Is this really happening? Is this really happening to me? Am I who I think I am? And that's a concept that she explores um, in, in, in pretty much in, in story after story. Is this really, uh, is this really going, uh, going on? Is this, um, is this person the person that I, that I think that they, that they are? Um, and in doing, in, in, in sort of, you know, doing that, uh, that thing where you sort of open up your mind to possibilities. I was passing by um, where I live. There's this, uh, there's this mountain that, um, and there's sort of two main, uh, two to three main roads up the mountain, but the one that's sort of the most remote, it has a long, long, long stretch of road before you get to a state prison in the middle of nowhere. And then I thought to myself, who the heck lives out there? And that, and who would live out there? Who would want to live out there? And that was in many ways the genesis for, uh, for Charles, the, 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 the male figure in Not the Man I Married. And I immediately saw him with those sort of reflective sunglasses like in Puhanu. And I thought, wow, what's behind that? Is it just more reflection or is it something, uh, something altogether different? And, um, and as I, you know, as I started writing and I, you know, kept, kept reading things and ran into Capra's syndrome where, which is a psychological condition in which you perceive people as looking exactly like them, but perceiving them as literally different. Like they're they're fakes in that sort of Jack you know uh, you know not, uh, Jack Finney body snatchers kind of way, and um, that moment where she's sitting there on the couch and he comes in and it's sort of like this this light bulb moment that where she realizes that no in some in some literal way he isn't the man that she married, but she can't fully realize that to herself. And so she sees him as being an exact duplicate, but not the same person until the, the later discovery downstairs lets you realize, yeah, we're, he's, he is the man you married. And that's kind of the, the not exactly the joke, but, the, but the, 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 the reveal that, yeah, he is. He's exactly the man you married. Yeah, I... Um... I find that notion entirely terrifying. And I, I, I find that notion, especially to, I, you know, I've, I've been married for uh, nine years and uh, I absolutely love my wife and partner. Um, I do not think that she's going to come out and try to murder me or, you know, anything like that. I don't think that there's anything nefarious, but you know, there, there's still that, I don't know. There's always that fear of, of, when you when you grow with someone are you growing in the same direction or what are the circumstances that cause you to grow in different directions right and i think there's a horror to that notion of of a person changing so much that that you no longer recognize them you know um i think this is a, a trope that shows up in horror all the time because you know, our, our social lives, our lives with, as social beings are so complex and, and you never know, you know, when you run into someone, um, you know, is the person that, that I'm meeting right now, is this the authentic self? Is this the authentic person or is there something else going on that we don't necessarily know? Um, you know, what, what happens when you think, you know, someone and you, you don't end up knowing that person and the ties that you have to that person, you know, like it's not so easy to just get out of a situation, right? No, no, it's not. And, you know, that was part of the reason why I wanted to set the, the house way the heck out um, in the middle of back and beyond in the middle of the desert, because it's, um, as I think I uh, mentioned at some point, um, the the uh, the prison that her husband um, is the warden of is uh, isn't in uh, isn't as deserted as some other sort of really 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 super max prisons that are out there, but it's but still the landscape itself acts as as a fence that keeps her 
pretty much locked locked into where she happens to be as 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 well as her as well as her children and her her lack of her lack of financial resources and so no it's not as easy as well you should just leave yeah that'd be great awesome awesome very cool um great great if you can do that please do and but not everyone can yeah, it, it comes back to that that idea of privilege, right? Like those of us with means, those of us, whether that those means be financial means or economic means or or you know other kinds of means like uh, family ties or you know sometimes just like having a place to crash. You know when when you you have that social network, those social means, right? Um, it's so easy to just presume that everyone else has the same means as you. I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to address privilege in literature, address privilege in the conversations we have about literature. 100%. And, and, and honestly, if, uh, if literature serves any purpose at all, and I think it serves so many that it's it's impossible to enumerate, but one of the most important ones, at least for me, um, is you are only, you're only you in this time, in this consciousness, in the center of events that's happening around you, but literature allows you the empathetic connection with with other people, with other events. You can step into the head of um of a chick in Regency England who's thinking, do I marry this guy who's really a terrible loser? And but my family's kind of depending on me because he's going to inherit the, the estate. And God, do do I do I turn him down? Or you can, or you can, you know, say, okay, what if uh you know I'm I'm on this desert planet and uh, the Harkonnens have taken over my whole entire family, and now I'm out in the desert, and we have to get along with, uh, with the 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 folks that are uh, that are there. How do I do that? You can step into the experiences and lives of uh, of other people, um, and experience the life that you will never that you will never have. But at least you can make that connection and and it's and I know that this sounds really kind of cheesy and idealistic but I really hope that through the experience of seeing of reading literature we enlarge ourselves at least to that extent and you can say okay I know how that feels because this author has taken me at least down that journey and I've gotten a sense of what it means to be this other person yeah I I love that that response. I, I have to tell you, you know, one of the things that I love about literature is, is when it does exactly what you just described. I also love it as a reader. When I read something that seems to galvanize, you know, my beliefs seems to, to kind of um, secure that I'm not alone in these feelings, yeah. that yeah. I'm not the only one who has these preoccupations. And, you know, to your point, there is a community where that community just be you and this author's message, right? That, that empowers you to see you are not alone in these thoughts. And moreover, um, you're not alone in seeking solutions, right? Um, so again, you know, kind of galvanizing you to action, to recognizing there are other people out here who are afraid of these same things. Um, what am I going to do to meet where they are and address these issues together, right? Um, that call to action, I think, is, is what's so wonderful in horror because, you know, not always do we get a direct call to action, but an implied call to action. Well, and I certainly think we get that. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and that, and when we get that call to action, what is the response? What do we do? How do we meet it? What what happens if we're afraid to if we're afraid to meet it? Um, even if it you know it might be something as dramatic as um, you know the king of the gats saying to to you Beowulf, hey, we have this monster problem. Can you help us? Or it might be something as minor as getting a letter saying, hey, I'm conducting some research. Can you can you go to this uh, can you go to this kind of creepy house in the middle of nowhere so that you know we can investigate psychic phenomena? Um, or hi, guess what? You've just been you know 
that that ring that your uncle gave you, yeah, let's do something about that because that's it's a problem. Um, and and how are we going to respond to it? And what what is that? What does that do or say about us? How do we respond to our own calls of action? The the nerd in me is loving every single one of these literary allusions. By the way. <laughs> I have to tell you, every, every every time you lead on one of these scenarios, I'm like, I read that book. <laughs> well, it's quite we're delightful. Not, we're just gonna be, we're just gonna be this one, we're just gonna be this one self. And I know that reading often looks like this really sort of isolated, self-contained uh, bubble activity, but I honestly think it's our minds reaching out to people that are. Uh, and, and, and it's the closest that we can literally come as far as we can provably or demonstrably know. It's a psychic connection where I mm -hmm. can leap into the head of, of some dude that's been dead for, uh, for hundreds of years and who would have been astonished that I am reading um, you know, his or her or their work on a computerized device that literally can hold... Um, a library's worth of unimaginable wealth in my purse and forget about it because it's so mm. light. But I can still make that, I can still read the thoughts, feel the feelings and read the words and be there even through translation, even through time and, um, and you know, changing social mores. It's, and, and then share and, and essentially hallucinate while looking at slivers of wood. Mm. Um. So I, on the, the reverse side of this, uh, and, and forgive me if this is kind of out of left field, but I mean, do you as a writer, do you feel um, a, a different sense of, of empowerment or a different sense of privilege by being able to get into the heads of the characters that you write? Because when I read Corporate Body, I mean, one of the things that, that I really connected with was the, the voice of Nick. I felt was so distinctive and um, you know, forgive me, but I, I could have been convinced that some poor college student would, you know, wrote this story. I like some guy with this very singular experience, you know, wrote this story. Well, in, you know, in many ways, you know, some, some poor college student did just a little while later. <laughs> Because, <laughs> uh, uh, because, yeah, it's uh, it, it. It is a pleasure, though, to be able to 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 dream while awake, and mm. to to to. And and for me, anyway, where a story often begins is, and I, I'm I'm sorry if this sounds like it's you know like um, how a really sort of typical sense of being um, spoken to by the muse, but. I start hearing the voices in talking to me in my head. I know that that sounds, um, sorry, to, sorry to make your dad even more worried, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I start hearing, uh, you know, hearing them tell their, their, their tales and, um, and yeah, and I, I, I knew where Nick was coming from right away because uh, because yeah, that was it, it was partly certainly based on my on my own experience, and then just you know taking it a half step from from there. Um, and it is a privilege to be able to step into the in, into the consciousness of somebody who's who's experiencing something that's uh, that's very different from from me. Um, it's you know when I've written uh, when I've written stories that were set in different periods um, as well. It's that. It's how does this how does this character view this this world through 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 their eyes, um, and and yeah, I love doing that. I really do. That's um, that's amazing. Thank you for for answering that that question. Just I, I know uh, that was not necessarily a prepared one, but so um, looking forward for you, what are some of the projects uh, that you have kind of coming up on the horizon or what are what are some of the things that you're working on now that we should all get excited for? Well, I'm very glad to say that I've got a story that's coming out in Nightmare Magazine. Um, 
And without a whole lot of spoilers, if you are, um, if you, uh, I, again, I know this is going to sound like I'm repeating myself and sorry, I guess it's just a theme, but if you have <laughs> a fear of pregnancy um, or fear of spiders, <laughs> might want to might want to like avoid it on the other hand if you're like yeah i'm totally up for that one great because uh because it's fun uh, because i had a lot of fun writing it um it's very much it's set in sort of the 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 five minutes ahead in the future um and and absolutely yeah written in in light of roe versus wade um okay all right the title of the story is 10,000 Crawling Children, if that will, if that gives you sort of any sense. That of, is uh, that is a terrifying title already. And uh, <laughs> I am absolutely going to have to be on the watch out for that one. Um, and, and, you know, I've got uh, I've got other things that are just sort of out and, you know, crossing my fingers, hoping that, uh, you know, hoping that uh, I get the happy email uh, saying, yes, we would we'd love to, you know love to have this um etc and you know just uh and you know trying to go back and and uh you know keep my keep my head open for you know for ideas that pop in there i think i've got one or two but we'll see uh it's sort of a matter of you know who who speaks the loudest as it were sure yeah so uh corporate body is out now as part of the my dark library series from cemetery gates um, I highly recommend this novella. I'm not just saying that because you're on the air with me. Um, I truly was just taken aback by how much I enjoyed this read, how much really worked for me just stylistically. Um, I, I just can't recommend it enough. So definitely go and get that. Um, where can f- people find you online for updates about your future projects? Well, I've got uh, I've I've got a website, um, uh, Ari Busby one at Weebly.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, um, also as and TikTok as well as Instagram, um, and I've got an Amazon author page. So, uh, you know, uh, and I'm on Goodreads as well. So if uh, so, please feel free to you know hit that like and subscribe button. You know. Because- <laughs> Because I'm, I'm definitely glad to to have people do that and to um, and to bring that story to to other folks as well. So wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, R.A. Busby. Um, this was just such a tremendous privilege. I'm so happy to have had you. Thank you so much for for having me on. It's it's genuinely a pleasure, and and I've I've really loved all the uh, the Slayhouse podcast episodes that i've heard up to this point and and looking forward to uh to listening to even more of them because i get educated and i get great recommendations for wonderful things uh to read um in addition to uh in addition to just hearing uh hearing folks talk about this craft that i love it's it's wonderful to hear you know hey you should you should read this cool uh this cool story um or or this is a great novel and i'm putting putting it on my ever lengthening to be read pile well, uh, that is just about the highest praise I could get. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so flattered. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure.